You are listening to the Grace Church Podcast. To learn more about grace, including our gathering times, visit us online at thegracechurch.net. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Tommy Jones. You're sort of getting dropped into the middle of a series. Uh, I would really, enc- well, you're still going to get something out of it, but I would encourage you if, if you want to, or maybe you've kind of been a little sporadic in your, um, in your attendance lately, go back online and watch some of these things, because I really think that God is doing something special through this series. Like even just the amount of people bringing their Bibles now. Um, I mean, how cool will it be if one day our church is known as the church that studies the Bible? That'd be cool, right? I mean, who saw that coming? Um, but I mean, I'm really, I'm really excited about this. And if you didn't bring yours this week, no worries. You can bring it next week. And I know some of you uh, go back and watch online and study. But uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in chapter 8. And we'll get to that in just a minute. We'll be in 8-1 uh, is where we'll start off. But So there's this, this uh, sort of thing going on in Revelation where we're sort of going through these judgments. And uh, as much as we all want to take judgment out of the Bible, it appears as though God wants it in there because it's in there. Um, I know, you know, there's even churches and whole groups of people who think there's no judgment in Christianity, that God is just good, loving, and coddles us and approves of everything we do. But the story of Revelation appears to be a story of at least some judgment. And so you've got these three judgments, and the first one was the seals. And we did that a few weeks ago. Does anyone know how many seals there were? Can you guess? Seven. Brilliant. Okay, now today we're going to talk about trumpets, the trumpet judgments. Would anyone like to guess how many trumpet judgments there are? Seven. All right, next week, or I think the week after next, actually, we're going to talk about the bold judgments. Anyone got any idea how many bold judgments there are? Seven. So that's right. And so the, the point of three series of seven judgments is God's judgment will be perfect. Seven, seven, so that's perfection. So the judgment of God will be without flaw, without fail. It will be perfect. And then as much as we don't like it or don't understand it, it's still what's happening. And each one of these judgments, we sort of talked about this a little bit. I don't think what we're supposed to come away with is there's all these seals and then there's all these trumpets and then there's all these bowls. It's sort of like all these things are happening sort of at once because each one of them ends with this great day of judgment where Christ returns and all of humanity is judged for the final time. So they all sort of end with the same thing. And we believe that most of these judgments aren't just something we're waiting for, although there will be a day when we'll know them in full. But right now we're actually experiencing this judgment in part, that we're seeing a little bit of what we will one day see completely. So Revelation isn't the book of waiting for what is to come. It's the book of what is and what is to come. It's the book of now and not yet. Right? And I know that's confusing, but I mean, you know, what can I do? And so if you guys remember last week, uh, we had all this stuff, and, we had the, and then we had this silence that was in the throne room. It was like this calm before the storm. It was really, I mean, I, just, I think that's a gorgeous part of the scripture. And we had this scene where uh, the prayers of the saints are rising up to God like incense, right? And then this angel shows up. And he takes a bowl, he takes uh, what holds incense, he takes an incense bowl, and he scoops up stuff from the altar, coal and fire from the altar, and he throws it down to earth. And then there's thunder and there's lightning and all this stuff. And then what happens is where we're going to start today. So that thunder and that lightning is what kicks off the trumpets. And in Revelation 8, verse 6, it says, Then the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to sound them. Okay, So this probably isn't something we see often, right? Seven angels with seven trumpets. Uh, I'm willing to bet most of us don't even see trumpets that often. 
Uh, for the Israelites, trumpets meant something. Uh, the only time we see trumpets probably is at a high school football game, right? And most of those people are poorly equipped. But I mean, we see, we see you know, well, I said Stuart Main played trumpet in high school, so I can say that. But like, you know, you, you get, that's when you see trumpets. For the Israelites, the trumpets had great meaning because trumpets were a common occurrence in the Israelite camps. And basically you had three things a trumpet would symbolize. And so when he talks about the trumpets, they're, talking, they're thinking of these three things. The first one is uh, you would gather people together. So you would blow a trumpet, and people would gather together, right? The second reason you would blow a trumpet is a war call. And so there was one trumpet sound for gathering people. There was a different trumpet sound for a war call, and that meant the Israelites were headed to war, right? And the third reason you would blow a trumpet is to symbolize a great feast or a great gathering, that something was about to happen. And so for the Israelites, the trumpet sounds aren't really... Remember, Revelation is not the book of fear. It's the book of encouragement for those who belong to God. Now, if you don't belong to God, yeah, there's some tough stuff in here. But if you do, it's the book of encouragement. So the trumpet sounds were encouraging, and it gathered the Israelites together, and so there's something's about to happen. And remember, there's been all these scenes where people were gathered around the altar praying. Uh, I think last week or the week before, you had all these martyrs. And they're up in heaven, and they're gathered around the throne room, and they're saying, when, God, when will you avenge us? And they're not praying like a selfish prayer for revenge like we might do if somebody hurt us. They're basically saying, God, when will your glory be fully known? When will your righteousness be fully known? When will your holiness be fully known on all the earth? And right after those prayers, the trumpet sounds means it's go time. Okay, so, so if you picture the trumpet sounds as, I've heard your prayers, now I'm about to answer. And the trumpet sound. And so uh, there's, there's, I'm trying to think of how I want to put this. I probably should have thought about that before I got up here. All right, so. In Revelation 8, Revelation 8, 7 through 12, there's four trumpets. And I'm not going to cover all those, so that's not going to be on the screen. I want you guys to read them on your own time because I, I, there's no way I can cover everything today. We're going 8 through 11 in order to stay on schedule. So you guys are going to have to go back and read a lot of stuff on your own. But I'm going to walk you through sort of the first four trumpet judgments. Uh, in the first, we see that uh, a third of the earth and a third of the trees and a third of the green grass are burned away, destroyed. So with the first, the first four are sort of judgments against, against creation, against the earth. And what you're going to see is a bunch of language from Exodus. Go back and read the Exodus story where Moses goes and says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Y'all remember this? And Moses goes and he says, he sings this song and he's like, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, ooh, baby, let my people go. And everyone's like, ooh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's sort of how it went. And so you've got that thing going on. But most of this language is pulled from the Exodus story. So go, I would encourage you to go back and read it. So the first one, forests are decimated. Now that's something we're waiting for, right? But isn't that also something that's happening? In great parts of the world, forests are being decimated. And it's causing great hardship and, and it's hurting the environment. And so we're waiting for this to happen, but it's also happening. We'll see in full what we're currently seeing in part. And then the second judgment, the seas are destroyed. Uh, basically... Uh, the seas, I think it turns to blood and, and there's all these problems with the seas. And then it says, uh, fishermen can't even catch fish. Well, if you live in Israel, most of your dependence is on the sea. And so for the sea to be destroyed and fishing can't happen, you know, this is a major problem. And by the way, this is a problem that's happening now. 
The oceans have become so polluted. I mean, you read about these fishermen in Alaska who are losing their jobs, and they can't because uh, Apalachicola, I mean, you know, you have these floods, this water comes down, and it ruins the oyster. You've got all these different things going on all around the world where oceans are experiencing the failure of man. And so these wraths are coming, but they're also kind of here, right? In the next one, you see the rivers. It says the fresh water becomes bitter. In the third trumpet, the fresh water becomes bitter. All right, so where, where do these people live? Remember, John wrote this book for us, but not to us. His original audience, where do they live? In a what? Desert. Guys, th- th- like when I do this, it means I want all oh, you. When I, it's like this is the, tr- let's try it again. Where do they live in a desert? That was good. Okay, that was good. We'll just edit that last part out there. It'll really look like I have some authority. So, all right, so they live in a desert. Now, imagine you live in a desert and you have no rivers. There were three rivers that fed everyone. Without those rivers in the desert, do you know what you have? A desert. (laughs) You got no water. That's a real problem. But again, there are places in the world where the fresh water is becoming polluted. There are places, this is happening. We are seeing this. We are seeing this happen in the world where fresh water is becoming unusable and you can't even drink it. And so these things are happening. One day they will happen in full. There's a fourth judgment. And this one is probably, it's horrible, but it's also beautiful. It says the sun, the moon, and the stars, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, I think a third of the stars is what it says were struck. And basically what happens was there was darkness in this fourth one. Man, this fourth one is mercy. This is God's grace. There's a John, we we believe the same John who probably wrote Revelation, wrote another book in the Bible. Does anyone want to guess what it was called? John. And and in John's other book, he says, Jesus was the light of the world. What's the best way to make someone miss the light? Put them in darkness. When do you miss the light the most? When you're in darkness. You don't miss the light when you're surrounded by light. Right? Again, there, there's parts of, there's even parts of our country. I think it's in Alaska where they, there's parts of the year where it's darkness for like 23, 22 hours a day, right? Don't you think those people miss the sunshine? I mean, it, it, there's a reason they would put prisoners in isolation and deprive them of sunlight because that is torture on the soul. When you're isolated and away from the light, you miss it more. And so this is God calling his people back. He said, man, it's about to get bad. But before it gets bad, I, I just want to fire a massive warning shot that says, this is what darkness will be like. Don't you want the light? So again, this is in the midst of judgment. What we see is the mercy and the grace of God calling people out of darkness into his wondrous light. And I, I love that. All right. And then we move into Revelation chapter 9. And that's where we get these next three trumpets. And these next three, I'm going to spend a lot more time on than in those first four. Because these next three are um, a wee bit complicated, I would say. Let's just jump into it. So here's the fifth trumpet, and I'm going to read a big piece of scripture here. If you got your Bible, we're going to be in Revelation 1, and I'm going to read through about uh, verse 11. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or a plant or a tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. Do y'all know how a bee stings once and dies, right? You know how a scorpion stings? 
over and over and over and over. And over. They not, my brother had a, uh, had a big sort of nappy hairdo when he was a child, Casey, and he got a scorpion stuck in it one day. And he had hair like out to here, like Fletch, and it just kept, kept popping him. So that, that, that's how a scorpion. And during those days, people will seek death, but they will not find it. They will long to die. But death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they were something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like a woman's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like thundering of many horses and chariots. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. And they had his king over them, the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it's Apollyon, that is the destroyer. Yikes. How many of you have that scripture on your refrigerator, by the way? That's a lot, right? I mean, I think we know now why people are like, you know what, I don't, th I think, I don't think I'm going to read Revelation. No, thank you. This is complicated stuff, but so, so let's try to break a few things down that we need to see here. Okay, first, he talks about this star that falls to earth. So there was a star that was in heaven, in the heavens, and it falls to earth. That star, we believe, is he's talking about Satan. It's symbolism for Satan. So this star who was once up there has fallen to earth, and this is Satan. And it says something interesting. He said that this enemy was given power, right? He was given power. And I think this is something we should sort of struggle with a little bit as Christians, that there is this, this Satan who is currently roaming the earth, who's fallen from heaven, and he will roam the earth. And he was given power. He was allowed to have his power by God. And so the fact that there is a hell and there is a Satan, those things only exist because God has allowed them to happen. And so I think it's probably right and righteous that we as Christians struggle with that just a little bit. Matter of fact, I go on a, um, a trip with, with some of my friends from high school every year, and they wouldn't mind me telling you all this because some, some of those guys don't believe the same things I believe. And there's some of my seven friends from high school, and they don't, they don't all believe what I believe. And, and so one day we were having a conversation and I remember one of them said to me, well, the problem with what you believe, Tommy, is that in your belief, God loses. And I was like, oh, oh, great. How so? You know? And he said, well, if everyone doesn't go to heaven, which you don't believe everyone does, and I don't believe everyone goes to heaven. He said, if you don't believe everyone goes to heaven, then you have to believe that God loses. If not everyone gets in, then, then God loses this, this battle. So basically, you believe in a God that loses. And my counter to that, which made me even less popular in the group on this particular day, was that's not true because uh, God doesn't lose. The only way God would lose is if sin was not punished or redeemed. If sin is eternally unpunished or unredeemed, then God would lose because sin would reign. But if sin is eternally punished, then it's to the glory of God. And if sin is redeemed, then it's to the glory of God. And I know this sounds harsh, but God doesn't lose because there's a hell. The same God who's the God of mercy and just, uh, the God of mercy and love and, and sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross, he wins whenever one of us gives our life to Christ. But he also wins when sin is punished because the same God is also the God of judgment and justice and wrath. He never loses. He's always glorified. He's glorified when sin is eternally punished, and he's glorified when people are eternally redeemed. Now, he has a preference, hint the reason he sent his son to die on a cross to make the choice easy. God doesn't lose. Humanity loses. God is always glorified. And that's a hard thing to stomach, isn't it? 
But I think it's unavoidable conclusion when we read the Bible with an open mind and we let God be who he is, not who we want him to be. And so God gets his glory no matter what. And so you've got Satan here, and, and, and he's, he's you know, prowling the earth, and then you've got all these locusts. And I don't think this is literal locusts, because that wouldn't be that big of a deal in the scheme of life. Literal locusts, is not, this is, these are demons. And so the locusts are God's, or not God's, the locusts are Satan's demonic army who's following him. And it says, and by the way, there's so much language from the Old Testament in here. I, I, all the imagery is language plucked from the Old Testament. And it says the locusts were given a, a time span. These demons are given a time span of five months. Isn't that a random time span? Five months. Would anyone like to know what the average lifespan of a Middle Eastern locust is? Five months. Now, I, I, don't, I don't think this is really, I don't think five months is really the, the key to this. I think what he's saying is there is an enemy of God and it has an appointed amount of time, which means what? One day, God will end it. That the evil in this earth, God is allowing. He's allowing so that you and I will have free will. He's allowing so that his wrath will take place. But he has power over it. And one day, God will end it. The, the enemy's days are numbered. That's why he's so frantic. Because he's dead. And one day, he will die a final death. But there is an enemy, and he is real. But those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit, remember the sign on their head, those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit, the devil has no power over you. One of the things that frustrates, frustrates me the most with Christians is when they say this, the devil made me do it. And maybe y'all have said it, and I've probably said it. I know I said it a lot in high school, but like, like people will be like, oh, the devil made me say that. Oh, the devil's just really been working on me this week. The devil, you know, I'm, I, I kicked that, I don't know, I kicked that bunny or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. The devil made me do it, right? I mean, we, we want to blame the devil. Guys, you, you need to hear this. If you are sealed in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, then the devil has no power over you and he can't make you do anything. He can annoy you. He can tempt you. He can torment you, but he cannot possess you and he cannot overtake you. So quit blaming him for what you're doing. We have to quit blaming the devil when we act like jerks. That's on us, not on him. You ever heard this? I know I've said this before. If you don't own the problem, you can't get rid of it. He's tempting, but he has no power over you. The people of God cannot be harmed by the enemy. And so Revelation 9, 13, let's go to the sixth trumpet. This one's equally as complex. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound by the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, and I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horse resembled the heads of the lions, and out of their mouths came fire and smoke and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the, of the horse was in its mouth and in its tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads, which they inflict injury. Who saw that coming? Right? What in the world? Okay, now again, we can get really bogged down here, and some of you will because it's fun, but not me. These are literal images of something. I mean, this is not literal. This is, this is figured. He's describing something. Uh, the four angels, we think, are the four horsemen from the apocalypse. There's another reference to that. But let's key on what's important here. 
A third of mankind was killed. A third of mankind was wiped out, right? Even in that number, I think what we're meant to hear is grace. That through this torment of the earth, a third, that's 33% of people died. But even in that number, there is grace. Because what do we see in God's character all throughout the Bible is that humanity sins. And every single person in here, no matter what your mommy told you about you, every single person in here has been an insult to God's holiness and righteousness. Every single one of us has sinned and offended God. So does God have the right, the righteous right to destroy us all? Yeah. But he never does it, does he? Remember the ark? He saved a few. Adam and Eve, he, doesn't, he sends them out of the garden and he, and he allows them to keep going. Even in this, we're seeing the wrath of God in the world, but he doesn't kill them all. It's a number that's severe, make no mistake, but it's not everyone. And I, and I think this next passage is verse 20. I think this points to the, to the heart behind this chapter. It says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see their heart or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Okay, what's the takeaway here? Humanity is seeing destruction. There's death. There's plagues. People are dying everywhere. And what are people not doing? Repenting. Y'all remember the story of Exodus? You remember, he goes to Pharaoh, and he puts seven plagues on him. Over and over, he plagues him with stuff, right? There's all these plagues on Pharaoh. And at the end of all those plagues, when the Israelites are running away, what does Pharaoh do? Follows them. Guys, I really would encourage you to read this thing. Follow, he follows them. Now, if you come to my house and you put plagues on my family, when you leave, you know what I'm not going to do? Follow you. I'm not even going to invite you back. We're just done. We're done. The minute you turn on my water to blood, you and I have no longer in relationship. Just, I have one policy and that's it. But he, he, he fought because people don't, and, and what we learn in the Bible is it's the fear of God that leads people to wisdom, but it's not the fear of God that leads us to repentance. It's the love of God that leads us to repentance. And we still see this today. I was, I've talked, man, I've talked to so many people over the last few days who are experiencing difficult situations or death. And they'll call me about their friend who you know, had a friend who died or whatever, went through some horrible thing. And I'll be like, maybe this will be what brings them to God. Because I think there has to be a moment for all of us when we look at this world and we see the death and we see the disease and we see the famine. And guys, I know bad things are happening in America, but this is a worldwide thing. And really bad things have been happening in the rest of the world for a long time. There has to be a moment when we look at all those things and our only response is, God, just save me. God, rescue me. And any response other than that is arrogance. That we would believe that one day everything's going to, I mean, God is our only hope in this world. You look around at everything, and at some point you have to be, okay, my money's not going to save me. My relationships aren't going to save me. My education is not going to save me because rich, educated people die. The only thing that will save me is the one who has power over death. But isn't it amazing that even in the midst of all of these things, people still don't repent? And so then we see chapter 10, and I'm not going to put chapter 10 on the screen again. You can go back and read on your own. But before this last trumpet, there's this little, and it's a really strange scene, but I mean, no stranger than any of the rest of them in Revelation. And this angel comes down, this angel starts talking to John. And so 
Uh, the angel gives John a scroll of the lamb, the lamb scroll in chapter 10. And does anyone know what John does with the lamb scroll? He doesn't put it in his pocket. He eats it. The angel says, hey, here's a scroll. And John's like, okay, cool. And then the angel goes, okay, now I want you to eat it. And he's like, hmm, is it a candy scroll? It's not a candy scroll. Um, Y'all may remember Ezekiel. Ezekiel was told to eat the scroll from the prophet. Same thing. Now, what would this mean? It says John ate it, and it wasn't good. It was bitter in his stomach because sometimes the word of God that he wants you to deliver to the world is not always fun. And so sometimes it's almost like eating something bitter that you have to share. Because not, if, if you're an honest and true messenger of God, then not every message is pleasant. And so John's been given this message in chapter 10, and, and we see this lamb scroll, and in 11, let's, we're going to go to chapter 11, and here's some of my favorite stuff in this whole part. 11.1, it says, I was given a reed-like measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Okay, so he's talking about the temple of God. So we've been talking about the, the wrath of God, and there's all these judgments, but the people aren't repenting. And then we jump into this other thing about the temple of God. In the Old Testament, we know the temple was a physical building. In the New Testament, what is the temple of God? Us. It's really clear on this. It says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So according to the New Testament, when we're talking about the New Testament temple, the New Testament temple is, raise your hand. Some of you aren't ready to be the temple yet, and I get that. But it's you. You are the New Testament temple. Okay, so here's what, here's what I believe. and I, I've, I believe that when we're talking about this right here, what we're talking about is the church. I think that's, so, so, so the, the wrath of God has not led people to repentance. But there's this other part of God, and, and the other part of God is love and mercy, and it's the image of Christ, and that is what the church is intended to be. It's the church that will bring people into relationship with Christ. It is the church led by Jesus Christ, where he is the head and he is the cornerstone. It is the church that's meant to win people. It is the church that's meant to say, now they're both God, but it's the church's job to be so winsome and so kind and so loving in the world that we actually look like Christ. So in the midst of God's judgment, whose job is it to rescue the world? You and me, because we are the church. The church is not the place you come to hang out on Sundays. The church is God's instrument to rescue the world. And we're not rescuing the world so that we can, you know, preserve America. We're rescuing the world so that thy kingdom might come here like it does in heaven. And that is a big, big responsibility and even in this, we're going to see these two witnesses now. And some of you may disagree with me on this, and that's okay. I could be wrong, or more likely you are. But then there's this, this verse 3. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 12, 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. So we got these two witnesses, okay, and they're prophesying. And it says, they are the two olive trees and the two, what's that next word? Lampstands. What has lampstand meant all throughout Revelation so far? The church. So now we're calling these two witnesses the church. It's almost as if what he may be saying is there will be a time when the church must come to life. There will be a time when, when the church must speak. There will be a time when the church will have a prophetic message like Elijah and like Moses before. And our message will be repent and come back to God. Repent, turn from your ways. 
Turn from the life you're living. Turn from a life that's all about you and come back to God. Come back home because this is the only one who can save you. And I believe that what he's talking about in these parts are the church. That there will be a season when the church has a prophetic witness in the world, a powerful witness in the world. But then something will happen in Revelation eleven seven. Now when they have finished their testimony... So when the churches spread the word of God, the gospel all around, then it says a beast comes up from the abyss and will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and, Gomor- Sodom and Egypt, and where also their Lord was crucified for three and a half days. Some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. Okay, I'm going to stop there for just a second, then I'll go to verse 11. It's almost as if there will be a period of time for the church. Let's assume maybe that he's talking about the church. That there will be a period of time when the church will be attacked by the enemy and the church's power in the world will grow cold. There will be a period of time when the church will be infiltrated by people who claim to speak for Christ, but they speak a gospel that has no judgment. They'll claim to speak for Christ, but they'll distort the truth. They'll claim to speak for Christ, but they'll simply say what our itching ears want to hear, and they will lure people away from God. I think what it's saying is there may be a time when you will be deceived away from the true gospel with a false one. Guys, can I tell you something? We're living in it at least a part of it, when we've been lured away by things that were shiny. We've been lured away from the truth. We've been lured away because we need to attract crowds and all these things, and instead of telling people the truth of God's word, we've simply told people what they want to hear. I think there will be a time when the church looks dead, and it says the, it says the world will celebrate. The sin will be rampant. People, I mean, people will just be doing whatever they want to do, and they'll do a lot of the things in the name of God. And sin will reign for a minute, and darkness will rejoice as though heaven has lost. But then verse 11, but after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up in heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on them. Maybe, just maybe, guys, you know, maybe what it's saying is there will be a day when the church sort of gives away her power, but there may be a day when God comes back to his bride. And what's the breath of God? Does anyone know what the breath of God is biblically? The Ruach, what's the breath of God? The Holy Spirit. When he puts the spirit back in and the church is alive again. And the church is preaching truth. And the church is living truth. And people aren't just showing up on Sunday and then ignoring everything for the rest of the week. The church is actually going out into the world and living like the church. We're not stepping over people who need us to go do our own thing and pursuing our own good and become full of pride and greed. That the church is actually living like the church. And here's what I believe. We're not waiting for that day. It's our job to make that day happen. We, we, think, we think the story of Revelation is we're waiting for all the... No, you are making these times happen now. And you guys can choose, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to live as a church alive right now. Or we can let the enemy have the last laugh. But I'm almost to the point in life where I think there can be no more middle ground. You're either in this thing with everything you've got. 
or you're in the way of what God is doing. And I know it's not you if this is your first time and you're just now, I get that. If you're just now finding Christ, that's one thing. But if you've been sitting in a church your whole life and you are not actively involved and engaged and you're not working to make thy kingdom come in the world, then you're part of the problem. And I think this is a clear mandate for a day when the church will actually live like it's full of the Spirit. There's, there's the next verse. In verse 11, 15, it says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. Can you imagine that moment? Imagine in heaven, and angels are around the throne, and, 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 and all these saints and martyrs are around the throne, and they look down, and they say, finally, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. And that should not be a moment we're waiting for. That should be a moment we're making happen. Guys, this will sound a little strange, but, but stick with me. There will be a moment when Christ comes again, okay? Without a doubt. But we're not waiting for that. Because Christ should be coming again now through you. Christ is coming again one day. But Christ is coming again today through you. You are the temple of God. Christ is in you. Walmart shouldn't be waiting for Christ to come again. Because when a Christian is in that space, it should be as though Christ has arrived. Your family shouldn't be sitting around waiting for Christ to come again because if you're a Jesus follower in your home, then Christ has arrived in your family. There should be no part of the world waiting for Christ to come again because where we go, Christ has arrived. And so where we go, things should look better. Is it? Is that what's happening? Shut your eyes for me for just a minute. This is, this is time to get honest with yourself. Nobody's, nobody's looking. Just for a moment. Think about the last week of your life. Was it obvious to the world around you that Christ had come to the world through you? Think back. Christ is coming again. There's no doubt about it. And when he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But where you go now, Christ goes now. What should that look like in your job? What should that look like when you're alone? What should that look like when you're with your family? Keep, 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 stay, stay in it. Stay, stay in it. Keep your eyes shut. It's you and God. If where you go, Christ goes, then what should it look like when you show up here? This is the gathering. We're gathered together in this place so that we might learn and grow and correct and encourage one another. And when you leave this place, Christ goes where you go. Christ is coming back again. And he will make all things clean. All that's broken in this world, Christ will repair. There will be no sorrow and no tears and no pain. There will be no death. And there will be no suffering. Christ is coming back again. But between this day and that day, Christ is coming back through us. We're about to worship. Will Christ come through your worship? 
In this place, we believe in giving. Is Christ coming through your finances? Is Christ coming through your service? Is Christ coming when you're in line at Sonic? Is when you leave here today and go to Easton Cafe, will Christ come through the way you treat your waitress? Christ is coming again. I know you've got pain. I know you've got problems. Is Christ showing up in that pain because you're in it? Suffering is joy for us. Because if I am to suffer, then Christ shows up in that suffering. He's coming back again one day. He's coming back. And today, he comes back through you. Let's stand and worship together. If you are encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at thegracechurch.net. And again, thanks for listening to the Grace Church Podcast.